And if you've got a Bible, please, can you open it at 1 John chapter 1? And I want to just highlight one or two thoughts this evening. Uh, we're beginning a new series uh, through the summer, just for about five weeks, in the epistle of 1 John. And there won't be a sort of detailed exposition and exegesis working our way through, but uh, the preachers each Sunday evening will just be highlighting some key texts, some key themes that are there. Before we pray and tuck in, can I just say how much I'm going to miss Christopher? And he's been the most remarkable colleague, absolutely brilliant and hilarious, but also very challenging uh, in the right sense that he has challenged us to seek more of God and to see what God is doing and to love God's church, all of God's church. But if I could change any one thing about him, it would be that accent. I mean, BBC, no, I'd like to have heard a bit of West Country, my old babby, uh, and we'll have a bit of that later. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a speaking God. You love to speak to us, Lord. You don't leave us ignorant. We pray you'll speak to us tonight from your word and by your spirit and help us to understand more of your wonderful ways. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, you'll be familiar with the saying, no ifs or buts. And it means uh, without qualification or reservation or excuse, no ifs or buts. In America, they say no ifs, ands, or buts. They put the, an extra and in there. And I found it interesting this week reading about this phrase that it's used to test the cognitive faculties of patients who have suspected stroke or dementia. It's called the Falstein, Falstein exam, and patients are simply asked to repeat it, no ifs, ands, or buts, and uh, it tests their attentiveness and their cognitive skills and their language. What I want us to think about this evening in these few verses that were read to us is St. John's, the Apostle John the Beloved's no ifs, ands, or buts test. And in 1 John 1 verse 8, a verse that will be very familiar to you, particularly if you're Anglican, often it's a verse that is used at the start of a service when we come to confession. And what a wonderful verse it is. Not a verse that causes us to shrink, but to grow and to glow in the presence and grace of God. And it says, as you know, if we claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want to tease that open this evening. There are no ifs or buts about whether or not we have sinned. And there are some awesome if, ands, and buts if we find ourselves having sinned. I've got two main points, and the first is this, that I want us to consider the global pandemic of sin. If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that is a truth for all of us. It is a universal truth. What is sin? It's not a word you'll often hear on the BBC or on the radio. People are not discussing it in the cafes or the pubs or the restaurants, generally speaking. So what is it, and why does the Bible underline it and make much of it? In the Old Testament, sin is the idea that we have deviated, moved away from, fallen short of, and failed to obey or comply with God's good laws for life. That God has decreed and ordered and ordained how life should be. And sin is our falling short of that, our failing that standard, our deviating from it. The same is true of the New Testament use in the Greek New Testament. There it means to miss the mark. And it's a word that was used of an archer aiming at a target and failing to hit it. And the Lord Jesus often talked about sin. And he said that the source of it is not, is, is not outside of us, but inside of us. And it's in our hearts and that there's something wrong in our hearts that affects us in, in our interaction in society with God and one another and causes us to go wrong. Sin is anything we say or think or do that goes against God's good ways, God's best ways, that falls short of the way that God has ordered our lives for our flourishing. Sin leads to diminishing. It's an unraveling. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said, sin is our ruin. It undoes us. It pulls us away from God who is holy, away from God, who is light, so we walk in the darkness, away from God, who is life, so we begin to shrivel. Now, most people have a sense of their sin. They know that they are, in fact, individuals. The psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, wrote a bestseller about 50 years ago called Whatever Became of Sin. And he recalled that on a sunny day in September 1972, he was walking through uh, Chicago Main Street, and there on the corner was a chap dressed uh, rather formally and looking rather stern. And this chap would just look at people as they walked by, point a finger at them in an accusing way, and say, guilty. And amazingly, people stopped. And a crowd gathered. They thought some sort of street theater. And there they were, this huge crowd. And Menninger, the psychiatrist, was observing this. And this guy would just look around and point at someone guilty. And move around. Guilty. And he says, Menninger says that he pointed to this chap, a complete stranger, beside him. Guilty. And this stranger beside him, all the color drained from his face. He went completely ashen. And he turned to Dr. Manager and said, How did he know? How did he know? 
I don't know what the guy was doing, whether it was just street theater or had a more spiritual uh, underpinning and he was doing some sort of mission. But he was right. How did he know? Because he understood the human condition. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and failed and fallen short of the standard that God has set. All have sinned and moved away from the life and light and flourishing that God wants for us. That said, some people are deceived. St. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But some people actually are deceived. I read this a few years ago in the Telegraph. Um, and Joan Collins, to celebrate and mark her fifth marriage, did an interview. And she said this, I've never done anything bad to anyone. Never. And that is one of the things I'm most proud of. I've never hurt anybody. I've never been vicious about anybody, never taken any drugs, never tricked anyone. On the contrary, I can say that many people have done me harm. I basically think that when one meets one's maker, if I do, there won't be anything that I've done that I need to be ashamed of. Nothing. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I've met many people who don't believe in God, but only one of them has ever said to me, and that was 30 years ago, no one since has ever said to me that they don't believe they've ever sinned. They don't believe they've ever done anything wrong. And they were very smart, but they basically said, look, along with Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, they wrote this, where there is no God, everything is permissible. They said there isn't a God, and therefore there are no moral categories. They're merely a kind of pragmatic social construct that is created for us to sort of get on uh, with one another. But don't tell me that there's some moral absolute. No, he, this guy said to me, he was from Bristol, Brazil. He said, I've never done anything wrong. But most people know. Even if they're uncertain and agnostic about God, most people know that there's something not right. Most people know that there is a sense of guilt and wrongdoing, that they haven't even lived up to their own standard in life, let alone one that God has set. And how do people respond to this? Well, some t try to pass the buck. This is old as Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, me, says Adam, it was her. You put her here. In fact, God, it's your fault. That's what Adam was saying. And Eve said, what do you want about? Well, me, that snake. God, it's your fault for letting the snake come into the garden. We try to pass the buck rather than take responsibility. And people blame all sorts. They blame their environment blame their education, they blame their dad, they blame their DNA. It's all about nurture and something wrong has been done to them rather than taking responsibility for it. My parents didn't love me, my teachers didn't help me, and so on. The Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor wrote this, we've transferred so many issues that used to be considered moral onto a therapeutic register. What was formerly seen as personal sin is now seen as sickness. But are we getting any better? Are we getting treated? Are we getting sorted? 
Others seek to disassociate themselves from responsibility in the act of their sin. I read a remarkable book a while ago, and in it, a a psychiatrist who worked with um, prisoners said uh, uh, very often they, they won't accept responsibility, he said, they'll blame the doctor for giving them the wrong meds. And they'll say, my head went off, or the knife went in putting the blame outside of themselves on the instrument or on the lack of medication, but not on themselves. Then others, when confronted with sin, seek to atone for it by their own actions. They recognize there's something wrong in them. They recognize that they've done something wrong. They recognize that there is a God and that He's good and that He's holy. They recognize that they're often not good and that they're not holy and that there's a great gulf between them and God and they've got to do something to put things right. And so they, they, uh, they try to improve themselves on the outside or on the in. They devote themselves to all sorts of uh, religious things, good works and charity, somehow to compensate or to clean themselves up. This is the religious imperative, to somehow balance the scales so actually their good will outweigh the bad. But does it remove it? If you've got six eggs and five are good and one's bad and you mix them together, does the good outweigh the bad or the bad? influence the good. And still others try to compare themselves with others. They, they point to worse examples. Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not that bad. I remember a chap in the bike shop once when I was uh, getting the bike sorted, and I told him that I was a priest. He said, um, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not Hitler. I said, what, what are you on about? I'm not judging you anyway. I'm not here to criticize. But immediately, in the context of a vicar, he felt guilty. But then he had to justify himself. I'm not Hitler. But the standard is always God. The standard is not the worst person you can think of. It's the best. And how do our lives match up to the matchless Jesus? How do they look according to him? You know, I met someone on the high street a while ago, and I was telling them I was a vicar. He said, yeah, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm not religious, but I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I said, which ones? I mean, obviously, he couldn't repeat any of them. And I said, but you know, in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments, and Jesus summed them all up in one, which is two. Love God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor just as, as you'd like to be loved. How do we measure up with that? That's the standard. That's the, that's the, the gold standard of God's law. And all the other laws just point to this one. I've got to love God. I've got to love my neighbor. How am I doing? How, how are you doing? Some recognize their sin and their fracture the rupture between them and God, the damage that has been caused to themselves and that they caused to others. And they long to be free. They long to be forgiven. And they long to be whole. A friend of mine, a priest, Kate Seagrave, known to some of you, she served on the staff here wonderfully some years ago. She was at the gym and, and uh, 
her fitness coach, knowing that she was a priest, after a while came up to her and said, okay, you've got three minutes to explain what Christians believe. And then before she could start, they said this, I just can't get this feeling of guilt away. I'm looking for something to take away my guilt. People are looking for something to take away their guilt. When they're honest with themselves, when they're not projecting it onto others, when they're not passing the buck, when they're not trying to uh, meet some standard that they think God wants by being religious, ultimately, they want to take away their guilt. They know they're not who they should be. They're not how they should be. They're not with whom they should be. They know something is wrong. It's off kilter. And there is this gnawing guilt that so often is there. Not all the time. Often we can crowd that guilt out with work and hobbies and relationships and stuff. But when we're on our own and when things are put to one side, it's amazing how often I've been called out to talk to people either when they're dying or when they retire. And suddenly they're not as busy as they were when they retire. And when they're dying, they're not going anywhere. And then they want to talk to the priest because suddenly all those memories come crowding in and the shadows begin to accuse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There is a global pandemic of sin. When I've got two points, here's the second one. John doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us. He's not there to criticize. That's not the point of this. He's like a surgeon exposing something in order to deal with it and heal. There is, secondly, a divine vaccine for this sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. No ifs or buts. That's how it is. However, but if, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's the wonderful thing. You know, some people think that Christianity is here to sort of, you know, drop a kind of guilt bomb on people. It's the complete opposite. We recognize people are guilty. We're here to remove that. That's what the church is about. That is the purpose of Christ's coming. And God doesn't want to condemn us, but to comfort us. God doesn't want to expose our guilt and shame. He wants to cover it. You know the word atonement, a religious word, you know what it means? It just means cover. Adam and Eve, after they'd sinned, hid naked and ashamed. And God came looking for them in the cool of the day. And they had hid themselves behind a bush and they'd hid themselves behind some fig leaf kit. And God comes and he doesn't expose them. They had exposed themselves in their shame and their guilt. God doesn't, God covers them. And it said God made clothing for them. And the word there for God making that clothing is the word for atonement. God covers them. God makes an atonement. God wants to cover our shame. He wants to cover our sin. He's always wanted to do it. And God doesn't want us living now or in eternity in the consequence of our sin. God doesn't want us to be separated from Him. He wants us home with Him. 
He always wanted to be with us. God doesn't want us left undone. God doesn't want to do us in. God's always been out to bless us and not to get us. And He doesn't want us to compensate. He doesn't want us to think that we've got to do something and get religious in order to get right with Him. He doesn't want us to punish ourselves. He just wants to bring us close. And what we need is what He supplies. God knows we can't do it for ourselves, so God does it for us. We can't clean ourselves. We can't cover our own sin. We can't fit ourselves for God. We can't make ourselves right with Him. We can't undo the wrong that we have done, but He can, and He wants to. And that's why this is good news. It's the greatest news. And how? What is the mechanism for that? What do we need to do if we confess our sins? Is that it? I mean, surely there's got to be more than that. Surely you want 90% of my income. Surely you want me to you know, climb the steps of the Santa Scala in Rome on my knees. Surely you want me to whip myself. Surely you want me to throw myself and devote myself completely to the poor for the rest of my life. Surely I've got to do something to atone for it. And he says, no. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. What does confess mean? The Greek word is homologeo. And it literally means, there's two words, one and speak. It means to speak as one. It means to speak with God, to agree with God, to agree with God's assessment and God's value judgment on us. And to say, God, you're right. I'm not hiding. I'm not covering it up. You are right. And I've been wrong. And I'm sorry. If we confess our sins. And then that's all we got to do. And then what does he do? If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just. And we'll do two things. He'll forgive our sins. He'll turn aside his judgment against them. And he'll repair the consequence of them. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's an if and an and, but there's no if and, and or but about this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he will forgive us, turning aside his judgment and repairing all the wrong and the consequence of our sin, and he will wipe it all away. One is judicial, and the other is, ration, uh, is relational. Uh, our standing before him than our standing in life. Can it really be that easy? I mean, come on, God, don't you want a pound of flesh from us? God says, no. No harsh penalty, no harsh demand, no penance from us. And we are put right, and we're forgiven, and we're saved, and we're brought into his family, and we're seated with him in heavenly realms, and we're going to spend forever ruling with him on the basis simply of his generosity to us and our acceptance of his kindness. I mean, this is scandalous grace. If you ever want to understand the meaning of the word grace, this is it. It's just free, 
unmerited, undeserved favor of God that says all you've got to do is confess and you're forgiven. Forgiveness for us is free and full and complete for those who confess and trust in Jesus. But it did cost God. It cost him the death of his only begotten son. God doesn't simply absorb sin or annul the punishment. But he was in Christ drawing the world to himself. He is faithful and just. He's faithful to us and he's just to his own justice. And wrong must be punished and wrong made right. And that's why we go from this John talking about our sin to chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. So we've got a job to do telling them. Our forgiveness on the basis simply of our confession somehow draws to ourself and applies to ourself the benefit of the death of Jesus for us. Now, I got degrees in theology. I've been a minister for over 30 years. I've given <laughs> too many talks. This is a mystery, and it defies logic. And it is a scandal. And there are those that find it most uncomfortable and think that God should have acted in a different way than God did. If there was another way, he would have acted in that way. All we can say is that Jesus, we're told, is our advocate, one who speaks for us, one who sides with us, one who acts for us. And in his advocacy, he represents us. He becomes a substitute for us. A just judge must punish wrongdoing or they wouldn't be just and doing their judging. And God in Christ Jesus judges us by taking our place in our stead for us. And he who knew no sin becomes sin and God lays on him the judgment of us all. And he dies and Three days later, he rises again. His death is sufficient as a sacrifice and as a substitute for us to cover our sin. And when we confess our sin and just say yes to his great yes to us, we receive the benefit of his death for us and our sins on the basis of that can be wiped away. It's extraordinary. Why would he do it? Well, later on in chapter 3, we read that God is love. So he's just and he's holy. He must punish sin, but he's also love, and his, his love triumphs over his justice. He loved you to death. He loved you more than himself. He loved you from all eternity. And because he loves you, he's made it that easy to be forgiven and right with him. No ifs, ands, or buts. And it's for anyone and everyone who simply says yes to him. I need to finish. I watched a remarkable Polish movie this week called Zakmar. Um, I don't know if that's pronounced right. Forgive me if it's wrong. Zakmar. 
in Polish, and it means cataract in Polish, but in the uh, English version on Netflix, it's called blindness. I think cataract is a more sophisticated title, especially if you see the film. And it's based on the true story of a Stalinist NKVD um, colonel called Julia Bristiger, who headed up an infamous Stalinist Department of Public Security. And their motto, their aim was, quote, to wage war on religion. And after the Second World War in the late 40s and 50s, this woman ran this department that existed to suppress and oppress public religion, Catholicism, in Poland. And she was a sadist. And she personally tortured hundreds of priests and nuns and devout Christians who were arrested. And one of the people that she tortured was someone who was a bishop and went on to become a cardinal. And in retirement, in her old age, you, I do encourage you to watch this film, Blindness. In her old age, she doesn't believe in God, where there is no God, everything is permissible. And yet, she feels this guilt. She feels this shame. She knows some, she's done something wrong. She doesn't understand it. She's got a PhD in philosophy. She can justify all her actions intellectually. And yet, she knows this was wrong. And she goes and visits the cardinal who she tortured. She meets him in a chapel there's a cross. In all the scenes, there's always a cross behind her. Very powerful. And the conversation tiptoes round. And then finally, the cardinal says to her, why are you here? And Julia, Julia replies, can I become someone else? Can I become someone else? Is it possible for me, she says, given what I was, to be someone else. And the cardinal says, God doesn't reject anyone, not even sinners. And she falls on the floor and lets out this scream and breaks down in tears and repentance. She doesn't even know God, but she knows she wants him. And she's calling out, and in her tears is getting clean. And this is a true story. And this former persecutor of the church works through her intellectual issues, works through her past, is forgiven by those she abused, and then she comes to God. And in her last year, she repents of her sin. She converts to Christ. She is baptized and is born again. It's never too late to confess your sins. Never too late to get right with God. Never too late to be forgiven. Never too late to become righteous. Never too late to avail yourself of the exchange that Jesus did at the cross for you. Never too late to become the person you were meant to be. No ifs, 
no ands, no buts. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.